Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. Uh, Genesis is the story of the beginnings, both the beginning of the world and the beginning of the beginning of redemption after the fall. And in that sense, it catalogs these early families, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So starting with to read with verse 29, relatively short reading today, just uh, 29 to 34. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that, the same, that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. I debated back and forth regarding the, the title for our sermon today between family stories, which I picked, and the, the title for our first verse, now Jacob cooked a stew. I thought both, uh, both were very stimulating to the, to the eye and the mind. Uh, but I've uh, settled on the idea of family stories because it comes closer to the idea that this this account gives in terms of the family, in terms of how to how to think of our families, how to rear our families, and that sort of thing. Because the Bible is full of these family stories. They, they are stories which are very conducive to our understanding um, what we're trying to do in terms of our families. And especially our children benefit when we turn to them and tell them stories, either the Bible stories or stories about our own families to use as illustrations. Now, what I want you to see here is that this scripture passage lent itself graphically to being repeated later on in the history of Israel. It's a story. It's, it's an account, but it, it's also a very much a, a catchy story about how the great uncle of Israel, Esau, gave himself over to being a reprobate person. Because later on in Israel's history, they would know that, that Esau founded the Edomite peoples. And the Edomites turned out to be enemies of Israel. They were close neighbors, but they were always looking for an edge up. They were looking to, to capture some land or steal some cattle or uh, sheep or something like that from the Israelites. And so as they lived their lives, they would think of this story of how uh, Jacob... How Esau sold his birthright for nothing, for just a, a common meal, because it meant so little to him. And how, he, how Jacob, despite uh, some of the trickery associated with Jacob, how Jacob esteemed the heritage of Israel. And so the mothers and the fathers, they would encourage their children not to be tricky like Jacob, but to esteem the heritage of Israel, not to, 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 to esteem the birthright of being an Israelite, being an Israelite child, being a child of Israel and having Israelite 
parents, to esteem that and not to take it for nothing like Esau. And that story was a very catchy story and it would be repeated over and over again before uh, for people then. And so I thought it would be good for us to repeat those things now uh, because this is a covenant story. It's a story about this family, but because the family was central to the the covenant progression, the covenant continuity of Israel, it became uh, really illustrative of certain theological ideas. And it was a way of teaching the children to think more seriously about who they were and about where they had come from. Now, in, uh, in introducing this topic, let me just give you a couple of illustrations from my own life because early on I was regaled with this idea and so I tried to tell some stories to my boys as they were uh, growing up. And because of this, uh, I know my oldest boy, Rich, I don't know, I don't think Chris is quite the storyteller that Rich is, but, but Rich really developed this much more than I did even as I was rearing the kids. And um, so if you talk to his girls, now his girls are both uh, teenagers now, one an older teenager, one a middle teenager, but... Uh, both both girls, uh, if you mention the, the idea to them of Dickie stories, they, they brighten right up. Oh, yes, you know, uh, our daddy used to tell us all the time at t- bedtime, he would regale us every night with a different Dickie story. And if he didn't, uh, it was a way that we could stay up for a little bit longer. We'd say, oh, daddy, tell us another Dickie story. And so um, he did that. And uh, I know one of the stories that he would tell was a story about him buying a Christmas tree. And uh, uh, we were kind of against that that year, and uh, we didn't want to have one. And so then all of a sudden, uh, he had just got this new, really sporty car. It looked fantastic on the outside. It hardly ran on the inside. After you stopped it, the engine, there's nothing to brag about. But it looked great on the street. And uh, so he, he ended up coming home one day, and he's got this fir tree tied to the top of this car and it was a shiny car i think he put something like a cloth underneath it but just the thought of that scratchy tree on top of that car i thought oh what have you done son but so we gave him a hard time about it we told him you know we decided not to have a tree that year and uh, why did you get this tree well he you know he lived through that and then but the, the the real poignancy of the tree was that after christmas was over we we planted the tree in the backyard and that tree grew like a horse. I mean, it, 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 within a matter of 10 years, it was up 20 feet tall. And every time, then uh, when, when uh, Rich would come home uh, or draw our attention to that, you know, he'd say, look, that's the tree you guys didn't want me to get, you know. And so uh, he, that was just one Dickie story. But there are many. There are many. I, uh, and uh, I'll have to talk to my two grandchildren here to find out if there are some Chris stories that they've, they've heard or not. But just as we, uh, our, our kids really are, are drawn to these stories of our, our family and their past. One of the, one of the you know, stories that lingered with me in my youth, that my parents told me, was a story about um, a Grandma Gertie. Her, her name was Gertrude. And um, my grandfather, Boyle, had married, had married her. She was, a, she was a really flashy babe. And um, uh, she was she was still very pretty when uh, when we knew her, but uh, their marriage did not go all that well because Grandpa had, had aimed at beauty and superficiality and nothing to do with the more serious parts of her personality. And 
Uh, Gertie, she's long since gone now, but she, she was given over to a lot of psychological problems. She attempted suicide many, many times. It was really a total mess. So when our parents regaled us with the story, it was obvious. They didn't want us to do what Grandpa had done. Grandpa had erred big time. He had he'd found this woman, and it's not that she wasn't a worthwhile woman, or that I mean, she could be very friendly, she could be lovely, but uh, she did not have her life together. And you don't want to, you don't want to. It's like drilling a well, and where you know that there's poison water, you, you don't want to do that. You want you want you want your well to give out fresh water, uh, refreshing water, good quality water. And so, um, you know, when, when we were growing up, oh, one of the things that we were aiming at as kids was uh, try to find somebody that is more stable and uh, not like uh, Grandma Gertie. So these family stories are helpful. And as parents, we need to learn how to tell, use these stories in our family, use Bible stories to, like this one we have today, to catch up our children's minds and attention. Um, it's one thing to know all the theology of the Reformation, but if you don't know the stories of the Reformation, if you don't, if you're not able to uh, encourage and and uh, captivate your children's minds with the stories of the Scripture and the stories of the church history, uh, then you're doing them a uh, disservice. Now, here we have before us today a real a covenant story, and this this covenant story tells tells the uh, or explains how. How God is operating all the time, and then how we are operating. Because here we can see how Jacob operated. We can see how Esau operated. Uh, we're, we're living. We're thinking. We're, we have our personalities. We're doing certain things. Now, the question is, are our operations enlightened? Are our operations according to the scriptures? Are our operations in love with the Lord? And how do his operations dovetail in and work with ours? And in this story, you see how sometimes the craziest things that human beings do, the craziest operations that we make as human beings, we see that they can either be destroyed or uplifted by the operations of the Lord. Uh, in our bulletins every week, <clears throat> near the top, uh, the third prayer down on the, on the, in the prayer col column says, we thank, give the Lord thanks for God's power, which works incessantly to accomplish his will. Now, that's, that's an easy thing. It's a throwaway line in our bulletins every week. But it's, it's really extraordinary, and it's important. God is working. God never stops working to accomplish his will. And we need to be aware of that and pray that that incessant working would work to the benefit of the kingdom of God, which we know it will, but also to our benefit as we try to fit into that kingdom of God as uh, people in his uh, church, family, and uh, kingdom. And so uh, <clears throat> as we begin this story, then we see first of all, well, it's number two on the uh, sermon outline. We see that Esau had a hunger, and that comes out, right away in the, um, in the first couple lines. Esau had a hunger. Esau was passionate. Sometimes we think to ourselves, if we can just develop some passions in life, that will, that will be a blessing to us and that will justify everything else. And there are some people that speak at graduations and they, they'll exhort those that are 
graduating there to develop their passions, to to discover their passions, to do what is the thing that really uh, they, they find in their hearts. Well, the Lord the Lord doesn't say that that's a blessed thing. The Lord that only if our passions line up with His passions, with His victims, with His truth, with the things that He's called out for us. Esau had a hunger, and Esau had a passion, but it was not for anything really redeemed. And he was a passionate guy. He loved to eat. And uh, he, he, the Bible tells us that he was a, a very strong young man. He loved to go out and hunt and I suppose fish, do those kinds of things out there in the, in the bush to, uh, to find a game and to hunt. And he would bring back deer and that, those kinds of things, wild goats, and they, uh, he would uh, have Jacob cook them. And uh, Jacob developed his, uh, Jacob was more of a uh, homebody. He developed his gifts of uh, running, running the home, making sure that it was managed well and that sort of thing, which included taking care of his brother when his brother brought things in from the fields. But, um, but uh, in terms of Esau, well, we see that Esau's passions were all consuming. He really couldn't think if, if uh, when it comes to this birthright, he really couldn't think of what that meant, the dimensions of his birthright. All he could think of when he came in was, I'm hungry. The food smells good. I can't wait to begin to eat it. I can't wait to fill up my gut, my belly, with this good-smelling, good-tasting food. And so he was overwhelmed. He, he was not a very enlightened man. And when I say enlightened, it was like the lights were off. There were the, in terms of the Lord, there was just darkness. He couldn't really see the existence of God. He couldn't see that he was supposed to worship God. He couldn't see that he was supposed to be excited with worshiping the Lord. He was a man of passion. He liked to do certain things. He was passionate about the things he liked to do. The program for his life came from within his mind and within his heart without recognition or without uh, uh, considering the things of the Lord. And so uh, Esau had a hunger. I think of, uh, of some of the other uh, people of the Bible that are portrayed this way. One man that God used mightily was uh, Samson. Uh, you think of Samson and Delilah. And Samson was a man that was a very strong man, but uh, uh, he was just given over to sexual desire. And it, it, it basically consumed him. Now, God used that, despite his relationship with Delilah, God used that to ruin the Philistines. To get, uh, to get uh, Samson to fight against the Philistines because they would come and hurt him and his family and the Israelites and that sort of thing. So Samson was one of the judges at the time. Uh, Samson also had many thoughts about the Lord, but he was he was also consumed with the passions. And there were many, if you think about Samson and Delilah, their story together, you think that, well, here was a guy that was drifted a lot and did some crazy things, but he also had this ultimate passion for God. And uh, God used his passion either for good things or for bad things. But Esau, Esau had these passions. And uh, it says that, uh, <clears throat> that J now, now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same 
Red stew, for I am weary. Uh, therefore his name was called Edom, which means red and uh, or reddish. And uh, so, uh, first of all, here, number two, we see that Esau had a hunger. When we... When we think that we're growing in Christ, it's not enough for us to have strong yearnings. It's not enough for us to have an idea of what we want to do with our lives. The whole question is, does this idea line up with the Lord? Are are we living our lives in the light of the Lord? Are we living our lives quorum Deo, which in Latin means before the Lord? Is the Lord's light... enlightenment a part of the thinking of our lives if he is then we're Christians if we're not then we're probably pagans as uh, Esau turned out to be as he wandered further and further from uh, the land of uh, his grandfather uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac his dad so um, we see thirdly then that uh, the Jacob Esau had a hunger. Jacob had a scheme. Now, one of the great mysteries when you study Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the great mysteries is when you begin studying Jacob, you find that this is not a man that was just totally sanctified. He was not a man who went to Sunday school every week, let's say, and just did everything the teacher said and answered the questions right and uh, just never really did much else. No, uh, Jacob, we see here, Jacob had a scheme. When Esau came in hungry like this, Jacob had a scheme. Now, we don't know whether this was a scheme that popped into Jacob's mind suddenly, or we don't know if this is a scheme that came to him slowly, as he saw his passionate brother, who was given to wandering and given to foolishness. But whether it was the fast way or the slow way, the developed way or the undeveloped way, whatever, it did develop. And uh, on this occasion, when Esau came in, uh, Jacob hit him immediately with the idea of selling his birthright. He says, sell me your birthright as of this day. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What's this birthright to me? So then Jacob went, ratcheted up. He said, okay, uh, then swear to me as of this day. We know that when we are swearing or taking an oath means that we are Uh, isolating out some thought that we've expressed, some verbal thought or some mental thought that we've expressed, it's isolating that out and it's drawing special attention to it. So when Jacob called Esau to swear to him, he was saying, okay, we've talked about this casually, selling your birthright. You've just said to me, what is my birthright to me? But I don't want to just leave it out there in the the, uh, nether sphere of talk I want to really guarantee that you know what you're saying, that you're agreed to what you're saying, so swear to me. Now Esau would have understood that people in that society, if they took an oath or they swore to something, just like when we go to court and we swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, we're drawing special attention to the words that we're saying. Well, human beings are apt to be very loose with their talk and say things that they either don't mean or say things that they haven't really thought out. But when you swear to do something, when you swear before a court of law to tell the truth, if you lie, you can be held accountable for that false swearing or for that false oath. And so that's what, that's what Jacob did here. He said, swear to me 
that you will sell me your birthright and uh, by, by taking this meal. Now, when you think about the incongruity to that, uh, uh, selling your birthright, this was this the birthright was to be the head of the clan, to be uh, in the position of the firstborn. Now, Esau technically was the firstborn because even though they were twins, he came out first. So technically, you know, based upon the providence of God, Esau had the birthright. Esau had a right to the eldest son's privileges. That is, of, of ruling the clan, uh, first uh, first dibs on the property of the clan and the riches of the clan and that sort of thing. So, uh, But you see, th these things weren't all that important to Esau. Esau was a man of passion. He, he just wanted to be out running over the hills and hunting things and using his cunning to find wild animals that he could uh, slaughter, uh, kill first and slaughter and bring home for food. And he was proud of this. He was proud of his prowess to be able to do those things. But what he was not was careful or thoughtful about his birthright, about the heritage of the Lord, about worshiping the God of what? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God even attaches his name to these patriarchs to show that he was the God of revelation and the God of tradition and time, the God of historical development. He wanted uh, people to know, not unlike somebody like Joseph Smith, who says, well, God just opened up the heavens to me and all of a sudden showered me with this knowledge and this revelation. Now, the revelation of God, it comes really, it comes to people personally, but it also comes to people over time. And when God revealed himself to Abraham, he also revealed himself to Isaac. And he also revealed himself to Jacob. And so he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember Jesus in the New Testament, when the Sadducees came and they doubted the idea of the resurrection. And they asked Jesus, the Sadducees came and asked Jesus, now what... Uh, what do you believe about the resurrection? And Jesus knew they were trying to trap him. They'd be unhappy with him whichever way he answered. So how did he answer them? He said, what, what does God call himself? The God Does he not call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is God then dead? Is, uh, is, uh, is Abraham then dead? Or Isaac or Jacob? That's the present tense. Abraham still lives, Isaac, still, Isaac lives, and Jacob lives because they were our believers in Jehovah God. And from that, he proved the idea of the resurrection from the dead. And so um, Isaac, I mean, Jacob here was very self-conscious of this, even though he was not as mature as he should have been yet, even though he was still given over trickery and that sort of thing. He did esteem the, uh, the truth of the Lord and the traditions of the Lord. So Jacob had a scheme. It was based upon truth. Esau... Um, believed the lie, and it was not based on truth. And so um, we see that uh, Jacob had a, a, he esteemed the idea of the covenant. He esteemed the idea, he loved the idea of the Lord ruling his people, and he wanted to be the next patriarch of his clan. Again, he didn't understand it totally. He didn't understand it fully. He wasn't fully mature yet. But he did have this, this desire. He did have this, this idea in his mind. Jacob had a scheme. Now, fourthly, I argue here that Esau had no 
theology. In verse 32, it says, And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Now, when we're hungry, or when we have some passion that we feel in our bones, does that nullify all the theology that we know? Does that deny the truth of what God has revealed to us? Of course not. Of course not. But Esau had no theology. He, uh, uh, Esau was not, he, he had nothing to bring his thoughts together in a cohesive way. It was like you've got a bunch of pearls, but no string to go through the pearls. Esau just considered things haphazardly. Well, what, how does your mind work when you, when different choices present themselves to you in your life? Do your, do the different thoughts, are they, are they cohesive at all? Is there anything that unites them? When you think of taking a job or when you think of marrying a girl or when you think of moving here or there or doing anything, is there any kind of a scheme or plan in mind to which you're referring? Esau had nothing like this. He just went, he was a man of passion. He just went from thing to thing to thing to thing. Uh, he was driven about by what the Bible calls winds of doctrine. In other words, winds of ideas, I, I did good ideas that presented themselves to him. But they weren't the doctrines of God. They were just the they were humanistic doctrines, the doctrines of Esau. And so, um, are you operational in the enlightened sense with your life, the decisions that you make in your life? Uh, or are you just merely practical going to from one thing to the next to the next based upon what you think uh, ought to be done? Um, uh, with our president right now, President Biden, we see a man who has no theology either. I mean, uh, no matter what you think of him, it's very it's very obvious that he's uh, very arbitrary with his life. Fox all the time shows movies or videos of Joe pronouncing with the most serious voice, pronouncing on things of the past that are totally different from what he what he says now. At one time, Biden was very pro-life. Now he's excoriating the Supreme Court members because they dared to overthrow the right to abortion. Which is it? You see, he, he, has, no, he has no enduring theology. Uh, you can, you can hear, hear speeches by Joe also speaking about America and his pride in America. And now it's just the opposite. He, see, he sees man, uh, America as the, the most oftentimes he'll be saying the most corrupt nation or a nation which is fatally flawed that needs to pay attention to the world order, no longer putting America first or trying to see what God would have for America, but um, what, what the world would have for America. So, um, and, and God, in, in a sense, has placed our president in the most prominent position possible so that these things would be noticed. Well, we don't want to be like this. We want to be people that have enduring ideas, enduring um, things that we esteem and that we hold important for ourselves. And so in that sense, we want to have the story of the Lord, the story of Jesus, uh, prominent in our minds to make sure that we don't drift off and uh, sell our birthrights to foolish things. Now, the last point of the message is that, that God had an opinion of this too. God, it's, it's amazing, it's the very last clause of the very last verse of this section. 
in verse 34. Uh, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus, this is the part that's important. This is God's opinion. God characterizes or, or, or gives a characterization of the whole affair. It says, thus, Esau despised his birthright. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. When you despise something, it means that you hate it. You think you don't think anything of it. You don't put any value on it. It's a throwaway. It's a castaway. It's garbage. Thus, Esau considered his birthright a piece of garbage, something of which to be disposed. This is God's view of this thing. This is a God who runs operations day and night, incessantly, never ending, always to accomplish his good and holy will. And based upon that, we see God's opinion. God, Esau, despised his birthright. From this day forth, there would be no deep or abiding blessing in Esau's life. Esau would continue to exist. He sometimes even did some things that were somewhat nice to Jacob. Uh, when Jacob came back from his sojourn with his uncle Laban because, of the, because he, he cheated Esau out of his birthright, um, the Lord prevailed upon Esau to kind of make his peace with Jacob and not to try to kill him anymore. But uh, Esau never did anything great with his life anymore. He, was, he lived for himself. He ultimately established a whole people for himself, the Edomites. And these people were not people that were uh, enlightened by the things of the Lord. They were people that just lived for themselves and uh, ultimately persecuted the people of God, Israel. Do we despise our birthright? I, I think, man, this really speaks to us because we have certain things God has given us. If you're a believer today, you've received the birthright of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord Jesus has revealed to you that it's possible for you to be righteous in him and sin-free. Do you despise that, or, or is that the most important thing in your life? Jesus spoke about this as being the pearl of great price, that everything should be sold for in order to obtain the things of Christ. Now, Jesus said that these things should be esteemed, that they should be the most prominent things in our lives, our minds, our desires. But do we esteem them? Do we really think they're important? For what are we willing to trade our faith? A job promotion, a nice living, peace, comfort, all of these things. If we put anything like that above the things that we have in Christ, then we are willing to sell our birthright and we're no better in God's eyes than Esau was. And God will say over us, thus so-and-so, thus Bill or Robbie or Susan or uh, Roger, whoever, whatever our names might be, thus he or she despised his birthright. Are we Christians or are we sellers, marketers of the things of Christ? We must be, we must esteem the things of Christ. We must esteem this birthright that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ because Outside of Christ, there is no other salvation, no other possibility of salvation. There's no real meaning in life. 
We may run, we may be great hunters like Esau, but we hunt for no ultimate purpose. We just hunt for the sake of hunting. We don't farm with the idea of raising crops for the Lord. We don't do business with the idea of building that business for the Lord. We are utterly vain, empty people because we do not value the birthright that the Lord has given us. Let us be, in this case, like Jacob. Let us learn this story from the life of the patriarchs. Let us esteem the birthright that we have. Let us esteem Christ. Let us live for him. Let us never forget. Let that be the ulterior thought in our minds and our hearts for everything that we do. If so, we will be far happier, far more enthusiastic about life, far uh, less able to be depressed, defeated, discouraged about life because God will not fail us. If we have him as our ultimate motive in life, he will succeed, and we will succeed with him in the kingdom of God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst be with us and uh, fascinate us, enthuse us with the gospel and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to go on the way of Esau, the reprobate, but help us to run in the way of Jacob, the elect. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.